The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby you must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, have a few moments of silent prayer to get our focus on the teaching of the Word, use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and to put aside from our thinking the whatever distractions there might be about the events of the last week or the events of this afternoon or this coming week. Let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that we have this privilege, opportunity to study your word. The freedom in this nation to gather freely without government interference or without the fear of any sort of hostile action taken toward us that we might freely uh, exegete and understand your word, that we can apply it in our lives. Father, we continue to pray for our nation during this time of war, that you would give our leaders the wisdom, the skill, the uh, insight into their planning, that you might keep their thinking objective, that you might uh, encourage the nation as a whole, that we might put our support fully behind our leaders during this time, that we might have the patience and the steadfastness to stay the course and to defeat these enemies. Not only are they enemies of our nation, but they are in many ways enemies of Christianity and enemies of doctrine. Father, we pray now as we study your word that you would help us to understand these things, that we would see how they apply to our own lives and to our own thinking, that we might also have the courage to apply them to our lives and the steadfastness to stick with application, making your word the highest priority in our lives. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. We have been studying in 1 John, and we have seen that starting... In verse 11, that John gives the main command for the motivation of the Christian life. 1 John chapter, or excuse me, verse 12. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children. He uses the diminutive technion, which is referring to this congregation as, it's a term of endearment. He's referring to the whole congregation because he has been ministering to them. He says, I am writing to you for, little translation, for your sins are forgiven you because of his name's sake. Bad translation, the causal phrase is the last one. Because of his name's sake indicates because of his character. This is the motivation for the believer. Because we understand that God has dealt with every problem, he's dealt with every sin, that at the cross Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every sin in human history, that that is the motivation for our life as believers. And then in verses 13 and 14, we saw that John broke down the maturity level of the believer into three stages. He addresses the fathers, that is, the advanced believers. He addresses the young men, that is, the uh, adolescent believers. And he addresses the children. Here he switches the term from technion to paideia, indicating the 
young, immature, baby believer. He emphasizes certain things about each one. In the first verse, we have a summary. He's writing to the fathers because they know him who has been from the beginning. And to understand this phrase, because you know him, it's the same tense, voice, and mood of the same verb, genomai, that we have back in verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So obviously... The fathers, the mature believers, have come to an advanced knowledge and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're keeping His commandments. They are steadfast. There's no problems in their spiritual life. So that's all He says to them. He repeats the phrase basically the same way, same verbiage, verse 14. He addresses the young men. In verse 13, He said He's writing to them because they have overcome the evil one. He adds two things to that in verse 14. Not only have they overcome the evil one, but but they are strong. And we looked at that word, and we saw that it is related to dunamis. It's related to the spiritual warfare of the believer. So therefore, to understand what, it, what the believer's strength is, we must put that in the context of the angelic conflict. We did that. We saw that the strength in the believer's life is not our strength or power. It's God's strength and power. We looked at Second Corinthians chapter 12, where after Paul was faced with his uh, thorn demon... He learned the lesson that that God's grace is sufficient for us because His strength is brought to completion in our weakness. So that's grace orientation. God taught him, my grace is sufficient for you. So because you are strong indicates that he has, the the adolescent believer is strong because he is grace oriented. Secondly, we saw that he is strong because he is doctrinally oriented. The Word of God abides in you. And abiding, we've seen, is a term related to fellowship. So he's not only in fellowship, staying in fellowship, but he is applying the Word of God while he is in fellowship because you are, uh, the Word of God abides in you. And then third, we saw last time, and if you missed it, you need to get the tape, because you have overcome the evil one, and that is the verb nikao, nikao in the Greek, which refers to victory. It is a term that is used numerous times in the seven letters to the seven churches at the first three chapters of Revelation. And we looked at Revelation 2 and Revelation 3 and all the uses of that word, and we saw that it is a word that doesn't always mean the same kind of victory. There's a victory at the cross when an unbeliever becomes a believer. When an unbeliever puts his faith alone in Christ alone, at that point he uh, overcomes the world in one sense. But in another sense, he needs to advance in spiritual in his spiritual life to get to a point where he has rewards. And in all those passages in Revelation 2 and 3 in those seven letters to the seven churches, we saw last time that those who overcome, and this is the uh, believer advancing in maturity, those who overcome are rewarded. And different rewards are mentioned in different letters. But the bottom line is that there is a time of reward for the believer. There's a time of accountability. And that takes place at the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, which is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And there we saw that there are those believers who have advanced to spiritual maturity. These are successful believers who are going to be rewarded according to the gold, silver, and precious stones, which is a description, just a metaphor for the works produced in their life through the filling of God the Holy Spirit. Then there are those believers who all they have is wood, hay, and straw. That is, they haven't had any production in the spiritual life. They haven't had any maturity. Everything is just a product of the flesh, product of works. They haven't used rebound. They haven't confessed their sins. They haven't done anything that they should have done. They have just basically been saved, and that's it. They will suffer loss. They will lose rewards. What happens to those rewards? We saw that there's a technical word used for our inheritance called meros that is used in the story of the prodigal son when he asked for his inheritance. Peter, uh, Jesus used the word when he's talking to Peter and said, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, which was, a, which was a picture of forgiveness, if you don't let me wash your feet, that, uh, which is a picture of using 1 John 1, 9, day in and day out in the believer's life so he'll be in fellowship. So that in fellowship, he is walking by the Spirit, and the Spirit produces the gold, silver, and precious stones. He says to Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, if you don't let me forgive your sins on a daily basis through confession, then you will have no part, no inheritance 
in the kingdom. And then we saw in Revelation chapter 21, 5 and 6, that Jesus talks about the inheritance again, and he says there will be an inheritance to those who have been obedient and then those who are still living a life dominated by the sin nature. And that phrase we saw there was their part will be in the lake of fire, the second death, and their part, there's that word meros. It doesn't mean that's their place of destiny. It just simply says that's where their inheritance goes. That's where their portion is. So what happens is, according to when we put all of that together, is simply to say that when the believer loses rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, eventually at the end of time, after Old Testament saints' rewards have taken place, after tribulation saints' rewards have taken place, after millennial saints' rewards have taken place, when everything's over with, and all those undistributed uh, blessings, those undistributed contingent blessings for eternity, the rewards, they will be flushed into the lake of fire where they will burn up and be destroyed forever, and that will be a sign of the believer's failure to execute the spiritual life. That brings us up to verse 15. Up to this point, he has been, uh, John has been positive in his praise of the adolescent believer. But now there's a warning. So verses 14 through 14b, starting with the phrase, I have written to you young men, down through verse 17 is all addressed to the young men. He doesn't mention the baby believer again until 18, uh, verse 18. Children there is paideia. You have to know the Greek to recognize these distinctions. And from uh, 14b through 17, he's addressing the adolescent believer. So now we have a warning and a prohibition in verse 15. Let's just read through 15 through 17, and then we'll come back and exegete 15. This is all tied together. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. That is, do not love the cosmic system, nor the things in the cosmic system. If anyone loves the cosmic system, the love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the cosmic system, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides or remains forever." Now, there is a tremendous amount in these verses, and I imagine we're going to be camping out here for uh, several weeks as we take this apart to understand this, because the problem that happens, I think a vast majority of Christians come close to adolescence, but they're too much in love with the cosmic system, and they're, they're still thinking according to human viewpoint. And the cosmic system, worldliness, is not what you do. It is not necessarily, it can eventuate in a lifestyle, but it's not to be associated with any particular lifestyle. So we have to really understand this. Primarily, the cosmic system has to do with how you think. And every culture thinks a certain way. Now, I have a lot of opportunities to engage in cross-cultural communication. I have uh, traveled over to uh, different parts of the former Soviet Union, and I recognize that people in different parts, even over there, think differently. They just approach life from a different basis. Um, also, being from Texas and being from the South and being up in New England, people think differently in different regions of the country. They approach life differently, and it's, it's interesting to see some of those differences. But all of that relates to, to the cosmic system, various cosmic influences that are there. Because those are thought forms, how you analyze problems, how people resolve problems, how they face things. There are all kinds of different uh, uh, strategies that people use in different cultures. You go to Africa, you're faced with a different set. So the cosmic system isn't something that is just one system, one way of thinking, one way of doing things. It's represented by a lot of different ways, and these things change over time. It's the, the And we have to understand, as believers the dominant view of the cosmic system that affects our thinking. Let me give you an illustration. If you were to be a missionary to uh, some group in Africa, you would first of all have not only have to learn their language, but in learning their language, you have to learn their customs. You have to learn their value systems. You have to learn all the mores. You have to learn all the various uh, 
problems and that, that you can create. You can, you can inadvertently say something, do something, uh, respond a certain way, stand up or not stand up in a certain social situation and create an entire uh, trauma in society simply by not understanding the customs of those people. And so if you were to go as a missionary to a tribe in Africa or some uh, Asian group or some Stone Age tribe in Irian Jaya, you have to understand those things. You have to study that culture because that's the way those people think. And you have to be able to communicate the Word of God within the context of their culture. Well, the same thing is true for us as believers operating in the United States of America in 2001. There is a culture out there. We can fragment it into different subcultures. But basically, there is an American culture, a way of looking at life. And as a believer, we have been separated from that positionally. We are to learn the Word of God. And as we learn the Word of God and divine viewpoint dominates our thinking, then we are able to then face that culture and evaluate it. But the problem we all have is we're very close to that culture. We're so close, we don't always see how it's affecting our thinking. And many times we have adopted the thought forms, the value system, the rationales of the culture around us that inadvertently we've just picked this up because we've grown up in that culture and it's part of the way we think. Part of the way we, In fact, we often identify as, well, that's just common sense. I've heard people make a comment. You hear something, a statement from the Scriptures made and somebody says, well, that just seems to go against common sense. What they're saying is that goes against my, my, the, the cultural information I've received growing up as to what is the, the normative way to do things. And, uh, and now there's a conflict. What we have to do is come to grips with ways in which Western civilization and especially American culture has formulated issues and problem-solving and solutions so that we can avoid facing life on the terms of the cosmic system around us. We've identified this in the past. This is nothing new for this congregation. We've talked about the influence of psychology. Psychology is one of the major cosmic thought forms that influences our culture today. Anybody, any of you who have in the last, um, in the last couple of weeks used, used the term issue instead of problem, have inadvertently bought into postmodernism. Anybody who uh, has used the word self-image has inadvertently bought into that category of psychology as a legitimate expression of, of the soul makeup. It's not a biblical category. It's a Freudian or post-Freudian category. I mean, there's all kinds of things like that that come up. If you, if you face life's problems and you're talking with somebody, this came up recently in an uh, email from a taper, that you have somebody who apparently in their past had had some sort of extreme uh, abuse as a child, either verbal or physical or sexual. I'm not sure what, what it was, but, but they just found it very difficult to forgive whoever the adult was who did this? Well, you know, and, and the, the person was saying, "Well, I guess as a believer living in the angelic conflict, that's just—it's uh, just more difficult to forgive people." I won't tell you what my initial response to that was. That's just a typical rationalization that psychology has just has legitimized in our country. You know, you can't blame your parents for your problems. You can't blame the angelic conflict for your problems. You can't blame anybody else for your problems. We all live in the devil's world, and horrible th- things, to one degree or another, has happened to everybody. And forgiveness is because of what Christ did on the cross. And if you say, well, I just find it difficult, it's because of your own blasted self-absorption and arrogance, and you're too focused on your own problem and not focused on the grace of God, and that's it. You don't have to go through some process of going back and and dredging it all up and confronting the person with whatever happened and then working your way through the problem. See, that's so psychological. You don't find that kind of a solution or approach or strategy anywhere in the Scriptures. And yet you'll find that talked about in many, many pulpits in this country. And that's just one way in which Christianity has come under the influence of cosmic thinking. And it's the it, it's the... It's the air we breathe from the culture around us that influences us this way. So we have to spend a lot of time...
talking about cosmic thinking and how it affects us. Now, I've taken time in the last year to do an in-depth study of psychology. And you can get that on tape. It was in the Judges series back around Judges uh, 7 or 8. And we've looked at at creation and evolution because that's another aspect of the cosmic system around us that looks at the world from a naturalistic viewpoint as if God is not involved in the issues of life. And, and there are many other areas that we've looked at. And we earlier we did a brief study of postmodernism. And we're going to come back and take that apart in a little more detail because we see it rearing its ugly head in all kinds of subtle ways right now in illegitimate responses to the events that took place, the attack on America that took place on September 11th, some of the things that are going on in some businesses, in some schools, in some, some uh, corporations where they're not allowing uh, people to wear an American flag, they're not allowing them to display an American flag or decal on their desk, is a result of the influence of postmodernism through one of its subcategories, which is called multiculturalism. And in multiculturalism, the assumption is that, that since there are no absolutes, then all cultures are equally valid. That means the, uh, uh, the, the Islamic fundamentalist culture is just, I mean, the Islamic radical fundamentalist culture is just as valid as a Christian culture. And that's just as valid as some Stone Age culture down in uh, Papua New Guinea. So... Where, where whatever it is, then, then, then any affirmation of patriotism then is taken because postmodernism also produces a certain level of hypersubjectivity and hypersensitivity. Any kind of assertion of patriotism is taken as being an, assault, an insult to another culture. And, oh, we just wouldn't want to do that. We have to be sensitive. To everybody, see, sensitive. That's, that, that buys in. That, as soon as you start using those words like sensitive, you're buying into a psychologized worldview again. See, vocabulary matters, and the words we use are freighted with cosmic significance in many cases. So we come along and we use words like that. We have to be sensitive to these people, and we don't want to offend anybody. Well, if they're taking offense, that's their problem, but we have the right to assert and affirm our patriotism and devotion to our nation. And so what we see is a subtle way in which this postmodern multicultural thinking is eating away at and eroding at the core uh, of the American culture. Because we can't affirm its greatness anymore because that implies that some, some other culture isn't as great. And, oh, we just don't want to offend them, so... So that is taking over in many places, and we just have to be alert to how those same influences are present in our own thinking. So we'll take some time to take that apart. But before we get there, we have to start at the basic level of exegesis to make sure we properly understand what the text is saying. If you don't have a correct translation, you cannot have a correct interpretation. And if you don't have a correct interpretation, you can't have a correct application. So we'll start off with the basics, exegeting the text. We'll move from there uh, this morning into a basic understanding of what the cosmos is as a technical term in the New Testament. And then we'll come back in the weeks to come to take the other verses apart and then get into application in terms of understanding how cosmic thinking uh, operates in our own environment. Start with the verse. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This begins with a mandate of prohibition. A mandate of prohibition, and the key word is love. It is negated by the Greek negative particle may, uh, which indicates a prohibition. It's a, uh, I wrote, uh, there's a typo there, it's a present active imperative, not a present active indicative. It's a present active imperative of agapao, and a, the force of the present imperative, the force of the present imperative is to emphasize an ongoing action that this action should be a character or habit pattern in the life of the believer. So as a prohibition, our life should be characterized by not 
loving, not being attracted to the cosmic system. Now, a present imperative can have, a, a prohibition can have two implications or two nuances. One is stop loving the world, in which case what you're saying is you've been loving the world, now you need to stop doing it. But you judge from context whether it means that or whether it's just a statement of a general principle or habit pattern. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14.39, you have a prohibition to the Corinthians where Paul says, Do not forbid them to speak in tongues. Now, if you took that as a prohibition that you stop doing something you're already doing, that would be false because they weren't prohibiting anyone from speaking in tongues. They were allowing it. So you, the only point I'm making, it's a technical point of grammar, is that uh, you have to judge from the context whether he said, the author is saying stop doing something you're already doing or whether he's just saying make this a general principle not to do this. And so this is a general mandate. The imperative mood is the mood of intention, and it is the mood addressed to the volition of the individual. And so he is addressing the volition of the individual believer, saying that they should make a habit or character pattern in their life, uh, avoiding the cosmic thinking, avoiding the cosmic system. So that's the starting point. Do not love. The object expressed in the accusative case, the object of the verb is the world, the cosmos, the cosmic system. It is used in a technical sense of the evil system of thought that Satan has brought into the world in order to try to gain control of mankind and mankind's thinking that he might um, might achieve his goal of demonstrating that he can function as God. The basic meaning of cosmos is order, a regular disposition, Arrangement or adornment it has to do. Sometimes it's used as a military term for arranging an army in ranks or in battle formation. It was used with the idea of adornment or the adorning of women in their cosmetics. In fact, the term in English of cosmetics derives from the Greek word cosmos. It was also used to speak of the inhabited world. And it also described the thinking, that is, the orderly arrangement of ideas, values, principles that govern the thinking of men, the thinking of a culture, the thought forms of a society. It meant to, let me repeat that for you, the thinking, the orderly arrangement of ideas, values, principles that govern the thinking of men, the thinking of a culture, and the thought forms of a society. Some might say and have said that this appears to be a contradiction because in John 3.16, John says, that For God so loved the cosmos. But there we have to understand that this word has about five distinct meanings. And to properly interpret the passage, we have to analyze those meanings. The word can mean the created universe and is used that way in John 1.10. It can also refer to the world that is inhabited by mankind, and that's the sense in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That is the earth that's inhabited by mankind. And then third, it refers to the organized system of thinking that Satan has developed, including his plans, procedures, strategies, and tactics for subverting the human race to his goal and objective. And that's the point in this verse. We are not to love Satan's system. Now, Satan's system includes a vast array of things. It includes religious, all kinds of religion, all the world religions except for Christianity, which is not a religion but a relationship. All world religions are based on works. They're based somehow man is going to do something to uh, gain God's approbation or approval. In Christianity, in biblical Christianity, Jesus Christ did everything at the cross. Man does nothing. He simply accepts the free gift. So the cosmic system includes every variety of religious expression, even non-religious expressions. It includes a vast array of philosophical systems and philosophical approaches to life. And we are to avoid that. We're to identify it and remove it from our thinking. 
Do not love, that is, do not be attracted. Agape, or agapao is used here, not in the sense of, of uh, love. For example, later we, it talks, in the passage, it talks about the love for the Father. Here it uses the word agapao simply to mean attraction, infatuation, uh, involvement. Do not love the world, the cosmic system, nor the things in the world. Nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, it goes on to say, that if is a third class condition emphasizing the volition of the believer. The third class condition in the Greek, there are four different ways to express a conditional clause. And in the third class condition, we have more or less the case of, of a genuine condition, true, uh, a true hypothetical. Maybe you will and maybe you will not. It emphasizes the volition and the responsibility of the believer. If, and the believer may or may not love the world, but if you do love the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. And here we have an objective genitive phrase, which means love for the Father. Love for the Father. It, it, can be, uh, it could be understood as an subjective genitive, which would mean the love from the Father, which would indicate, if you took it that way, you might make a case for a loss of salvation, but that would be a stretch. It's best understood as the love for the Father. And this is saying that if you love the world, that is mutually exclusive of having fellowship with the Father. The love for the Father is not in Him. This reminds us of what John says earlier in this chapter. Turn back and look at 1 John 2, 3 through 5. Look at what John says in 1 John 2, 3 through 5. There he says, by this we know. In other words, there's clear evidence of fellowship. By this we know that we have come to know him. Perfect, active, indicative indicating a state that's completed in the past and emphasizing ongoing results. Coming to know Him is not knowledge at salvation. It is coming to an intimate understanding of God based on the learning of God's Word and application of doctrine in the soul. We have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So knowing Him is evidenced by keeping His commandments. The one who says that he has come to know Him claims a level of maturity and does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. doesn't mean he's not saved. It's just that the truth, that is Bible doctrine, is not operational in him. But on the contrary, if you keep his word, whoever keeps his word in him, the love for God, same phrase, the love for God has truly been brought to completion. So keeping his word and love for God are evidence of reaching a certain level of spiritual maturity. That level of spiritual maturity is spoken of as coming to know Him. Now, I want you to notice how intricate. John is so detailed in the way he writes this. You see, the fathers don't have to have anything extra said to them as mature believers because they have come to know the Father. The adolescent believer has had a measure of victory. He's doctrinally oriented. He's, he's, he's grace-oriented. He's doctrinally oriented. He has a personal sense of his eternal destiny. But he hasn't mastered personal love for God yet. Personal love for God is evidenced by keeping his commandments. If you keep his commandments, then you have come to know him, which is spiritual maturity. So what's keeping them? What's the problem? What's the danger zone? Once, the dangerous problem, once you reach spiritual adolescence, is an attraction to the cosmic system. And that's what happens is believers reach a level of, spirit, of spiritual maturity known as spiritual adolescence. They have a personal sense of their eternal destiny. They know that the decisions they make today are affecting their position in reality. But they're still at that stage thinking according to the world's categories, concepts, and values. And they have to root that out in order to make that next step to be able to truly love God, consistently keep His commandments, and get to that point that John calls knowing God. So that's the danger. We hit a danger zone. Once we cross the, cross the level of spiritual adolescence and personal sense of eternal destiny, we have, uh, have to deal with the cosmic system 
and all of its ramifications. So let's begin a study this morning of the doctrine of the cosmic system. The doctrine of the cosmic system. I've got about nine or ten points that we're going to cover this morning, perhaps. may take a little longer than that, but we need to lay down the basic foundation so we all understand what the Bible means by the cosmic system. First point, the cosmos. Cosmos, in the negative sense, describes the entire arrangement and system of thinking arrayed against God by Satan. It describes the entire arrangement and system of thinking arrayed against God by by Satan. It has as its primary meaning order, arrangement, and adornment. I want you to think about this in terms of the flow of uh, of biblical revelation. In Genesis 1-1, we're told, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then we look at verse 2 and it says, And the earth, or literally it's a disjunctive vav there, but the earth became formless and void. Tohu vabohu. So if we break that down, we have God creating perfection. He creates the world, although the term cosmos isn't used there, the Greek concept is present. God's creation, perfection, creates perfection. God is perfect. He can create nothing less than perfection. So the entire universe has perfect symmetry, balance, and order. He adorns the heavens with the stars and the moon and the sun. And then something happens. By verse 2, we have chaos. Everything is under divine judgment. There's darkness on the face of the deep. The deep is the salt sea, the chaotic, turbulent salt sea that is without order. So we go from order to disorder by verse 2. What happens in between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2? The fall of Lucifer, the fall of Satan takes place at that point in time. So that God begins with a universe in a world that's in perfect order, balance, and arrangement. And when Satan falls, it becomes a world and a universe of disorder and chaos. Now, the word cosmos, in this sense, is never used, even in the Septuagint, never used to translate anything in the Old Testament. So when we come to the New Testament, we're dealing with new revelation in the progress of revelation. This concept is not fully present, articulated at all. In the Old Testament, it's left to the New Testament to develop the idea of the cosmic system. And the cosmic system then becomes Satan's attempt, Satan's attempt and strategy to restore order on his terms to the disorder that's created by the satanic fall. It's his attempt to restore order and stability and meaning to planet Earth after the chaos of the fall. So let's get a definition. Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, wrote a very excellent, wrote an excellent systematic theology, and he's one of the few theologians that really deals with the cosmic system as a categorical doctrine. Let's see what he says. I don't know how well you can read that. This will probably be the last day we have the problem of a fading light. There's a new projector up here that has almost three times the power of the old one. So we just have to figure out how to get it set up, and then we won't have this washout problem anymore. Schaefer wrote in Volume 2, page 79 of his Systematic Theology, The Cosmos is a vast order or system that Satan has promoted which conforms to his ideals, aims, and methods. It is civilization now functioning apart from God, a civilization in which none of its promoters really expect God to share. See, the leaders in the world system, politically, they don't... God is outside the picture of their planning. 
It's a, a civilization which none of its promoters really expect God to share, who assign to God no consideration in respect to their projects, nor do they ascribe any causativity to him. Th- this system embraces its godless governments, conflicts, armaments, jealousies, its education, culture, religions of morality and pride. It is that sphere in which man lives. It is what he sees, what he employs. To the uncounted multitude, it is all they ever know so long as they live on this earth. It is properly styled the satanic system, which phrase is, in many instances, a justified interpretation of the so meaningful word cosmos. It is literally a cosmos diabolicus. It is everything around us. Most of what we call culture, and I'm not talking about high culture, I'm not talking about opera, ballet, or or art down at the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about culture, the values, the way we think, the way we vote, the politics, uh, the the way education is conducted, the philosophy of education that dominates the classroom, uh, the the philosophy of law that dominates the uh, courtroom. That's, That's what makes a culture what it is. And the culture around us is dominated, for the most part, and is undergirded by philosophical systems of thought that are rooted not in the Bible but in some false system of thinking. And we have been affected by that in our own thinking, and we have to understand what these, what these elements are and root them out of our own thinking. Point two, Satan is the ruler of the cosmic system, Scripture says. He is the ruler of the cosmic system. John 12:31 states now judgment is upon this world now the ruler of this world shall be cast out Jesus said that just before he went to the cross and he is saying that in a prophecy that talking about what will happen that very week that the ruler of this world shall be cast out indicating the defeat of Satan at the cross John 14.30, during the upper room discourse, Jesus says, I will not speak much more with you, that is, you all, the disciples, for the ruler of the world, that is, Satan, the ruler of the cosmos, is coming, and he has nothing in me. In other words, Jesus recognizes that there's going to be a showdown with Satan at the cross. Point three. Point two was Satan is the ruler of the cosmic system. He's the ruler of the world. Point three, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. From Afghanistan to America, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are of God. We believers are born from God. And the whole world, the whole cosmic, cosmos, cosmic system, lies in the power of the evil one. Whatever culture it is, it's all been affected by satanic control and influence. Point four. Satan, as the ruler of the cosmic system, was judged on the cross. Satan, as the ruler of the cosmic system, was judged on the cross. John sixteen, eleven, And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. See, that's a, in John 16... 8 through 11 is talking about the Holy Spirit's ministry of convicting what? When He comes, He will convict the cosmos. Not believers, but cosmos. He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And when those are explained in verse 11, Jesus says, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. He uses a past tense there in a, what's called a future use of the past tense because it hasn't happened yet, but it will happen the next day when Jesus Christ is paid, pays the penalty for our sins. That, too, is the final statement of condemnation against Satan. That is his defeat. Point five. The cosmic system has its own way of thinking. See, the cosmic system has its own way of thinking, its own view of ultimate reality. You see, we can break it down this way. The cosmic system has an ultimate view of reality. I mean, what's out there? Is there anything out there? Is the universe just made up of chemicals and atoms and subatomic particles? Or is there something more? Is it merely physical or does it go beyond the physical? And that phrase, beyond the physical, goes into, came from a Greek term called metaphysics. 
beyond the physical. And so you have a branch of, the, of a philosophy called metaphysics. And it focuses on questions like, is there a God? Does God exist? How do we know God exists? If there's a God, what is he like? But it's all done apart from the scriptures. And then you have a more common, more prosaic use of the term metaphysics, which applies to all these New Age religions that are going around today, where they're looking at uh, some sort of spiritual, noumenal thing that's floating around out there that we're trying to get in touch with, some greater consciousness or, or whatever it might be uh, that's emphasizing their thinking. So the cosmic system has its own way of thinking. It has an ultimate view of reality. Second, it has its own view of knowledge. It has its own view of knowledge or truth and how we come to know what is true. It has its own view of knowledge or truth and how we come to know what is truth. This is what uh, philosophy calls epistemology. Epistemology, and that is spelled E-P-I-S-T-E-M-O-L-O-G-Y. Epistemology, and that's how we know what we know. How do you know what you know? You say that you know something. How do you know that? How do you know you're right? How do you know that somebody else who says something different isn't right and you're right? So they have their own view of knowledge. How to derive a truth? Is there truth? Is there an absolute truth? How do we answer these questions? That's uh, what philosophy calls epistemology. The world has its own view of values. In philosophy, that's a study of ethics. Society has its own view of values, whether whether or not there are absolutes, whether everything is just relative. And it has its own standards for beauty, and that comes under the study, philosophical study called aesthetics. Aesthetics, that's a branch of philosophy which expresses human viewpoint standards for beauty. Let's look at an important passage. key passage on understanding human viewpoint is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Turn with me there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Crucial passage for understanding human viewpoint thinking, which is at the core of cosmic thinking and its contrast to divine viewpoint thinking or Bible doctrine. Paul says, in a defense of his own teaching... He says in verse 6, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age. And age is another term that is used in passages that is synonymous with cosmos. Age focuses on the temporal aspect in which the cosmic system operates. Satan is called the God of this age. So Paul is saying that we do speak wisdom, but that is Bible doctrine wisdom. Among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, that is not of this age. Its source is not in this age. What the believer holds to is a wisdom that is not from the source of this age, but is 180 degrees opposite the thinking of this age. He says, however, it's not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Verse 6, he says, yet... Uh, verse 7, he says, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. Now, that does not mean it's hidden. That does not mean it's some kind of enigmatic um, expression that you have to contemplate your navel, that you have to uh, get in, go into your prayer closet and uh, contemplate for a while. See, that's what's happening today. There's a tremendous surge of what's called contemplative or meditative spirituality today. And it's a throwback to the asceticism of the early Middle Ages. And it's amazing if you watch Christian publishing, as I do, the vast number of books that are being published today on the works of, of these mystic saints like John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila and all these mystics of the, of the Middle Ages who were all into various forms of asceticism and self-flagellation in order to impress God with how holy they were. And, uh, but today, evangelicals are getting involved in this. And, and it's all part of a movement where evangelicals are, are coming together with uh, Roman Catholicism. And there's this whole shift in, shifting emphasis on uh, spirituality as something that's mystical. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. Mystery, mysterion in the Greek, refers to hitherto unrevealed truth. Hitherto unrevealed truth, or truth that has not been revealed before by God. So he's saying we speak God's wisdom by way of a mystery. That is, we are now revealing that which has not been revealed. 
It is a hidden wisdom because it's hidden because God had not revealed it before. It wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. There are aspects of what Paul teaches in Corinthians and Ephesians and Galatians and Colossians that were not known in the Old Testament. That's why the spiritual life of the Old Testament believer is limited to some degree. We speak God's wisdom by way of a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Our glory would refer to present church-age believers. Ultimately, mystery doctrine is church-age doctrine. It is doctrine specifically related to the unique spiritual life of the present church age. Verse 8. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. See, they're operating on a another epistemological basis. We're going to get into that in a minute. They're looking for truth another way. They're trying to come to knowledge on another methodology. And see, methodology is important because if you try to get to the truth on the wrong methodology, you won't ever get there. The right thing has to be done in a right way, and if you try to learn truth the wrong way, you won't ever get to truth. You may approximate it, but you'll never really fully understand it in all of its dimensions. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So here he uses a great example that if they really understood divine viewpoint, they would have never crucified Christ. But since they crucified Christ, they obviously never understood the wisdom of God. And then a crucial verse he gives, he's now going to document this from Scripture. He's going to quote from Isaiah 64, 4. Things which I, just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. That is empiricism. We're going to look at a chart in a minute that's going to outline the ways in which we come to know truth. It's crucial to understand this, this chart. We'll probably see it several times in the coming weeks because it is the understanding of how we know truth. Understanding basic, basic epistemology. I don't want to let the word throw you. It's how you know what you know. How do you come to know truth? How do you know what you believe is true? That's basically the field of, uh, of epistemology or knowledge. So the first approach is through empiricism, through what you see or what you hear. Empiricism says that man can know truth through sense knowledge. Aristotle was an empiricist. John Locke was, an empiricist, was a modern empiricist. And that's what empiricism says. Is that it's a foundation of the scientific method. Now, we're not saying that, that empiricism is, is useless or, or worthless. It has a value. But it's got to be, that value is it has to be used in the right context. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not, ear has not heard refers to empiricism. The second category addresses rationalism. And which have not entered into the heart, that is the mind of man, and that is rationalism. Rationalism is a philosophical position that says that we learn knowledge based on innate categories in the mind, and man on his own, starting with, with thinking alone on the basis of pure reason, can come to absolute truth. And ultimately, man can discover everything there is that's knowable on the basis of his own reason. And so what this is saying is the things, that is doctrine, this is that mystery doctrine back in verses 7 and 8, says things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. You can't get it from empiricism, and which is not entered into the heart of man. You can't get it from rationalism. All that God has prepared for those who love Him. That is, this is the revelation of God that He has given in the Scriptures, in the completed canon of Scripture, for every believer. For to us, verse 10, for to us... God revealed them through the Spirit. This is the doctrine of revelation. It is God the Holy Spirit who reveals these things through the writers of the Scriptures, the prophets of the Old Testament and apostles in the New Testament, that the Holy Spirit discloses the thinking of Christ to the believer. That's how Paul will close this in verse 15, referring to the Bible as the thinking of Christ. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So this is an operation of God the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to continue with the next few verses here, but they are important for understanding how we learn, and we will come back to them eventually. The next point. All of that was point number five. The cosmic system has its own way of thinking, its own approach to truth, its own approach to knowledge. But we have a distinct approach. 
man has always sought to establish his authority of knowledge apart from revelation. Man in his autonomy, in his desire to be independent from God, thinks that he can come to know truth and define truth without reference to God or God's revelation. He wants to just cut God out of the loop. God is irrelevant. God is not necessary. We're somehow going to find the meaning and meaning of life, the answers to the mysteries of life on our own apart from God. So we have a chart. The basis of knowledge. Here's our chart. On the one side, we have the autonomous or independent systems of perception. This is all human viewpoint. The autonomous or human viewpoint systems of perception. At the bottom, divine viewpoint. That's the contrast between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. Between the biblical viewpoint, the expression of God's absolutes in the Bible, versus the uh, alternative developed by man. We're going to look at three aspects of each one. First of all, the system. Secondly, its starting point. And third, its method. Its system, starting point, and method. The first system is rationalism. That which has not entered into the heart of man. Rationalism in the ancient world was represented by Plato. In modern world, it's represented by Descartes. Descartes started his system by saying, I think, therefore I am. Most people have heard that. They don't know what it means. Descartes was trying to figure out what the ultimate, ultimate starting point was. How do I know anything exists? Maybe, maybe I'm just standing up here in this pulpit and, and there's nothing out there. Maybe, maybe you're just a cosmic illusion that God's given me and you all don't exist. You know, God's just this great deceiver up there and he's making me think that I'm going through this. And really nothing exists at all. And uh, God's just deceiving me with all of these uh, maybe I don't even exist. How, how do I know I even exist? Maybe it's all some cosmic illusion. But as he, as he thought about that, he said, well, if I'm thinking, and that means I have self-consciousness, if I'm thinking, I must exist. Ah, that's what he said, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. That's what he meant by that, because I'm thinking I must exist. Okay, now we have a bedrock starting point for our understanding of reality. And we're going to start from this point of the fact that I exist, so I know some, one thing exists, so maybe I can discover a basis for arguing that other things exist, and maybe even to the existence of God. If I can get to God starting with me, there you see the problem? If I can get to God starting with me, then I can build out to everything else. Well, that ultimately fell apart, and there were, we're not going, I'm not going to bore you with all the logical inconsistencies and problems in Cartesian logic, but, see, his starting point is that man has certain innate ideas, but the, the bedrock is faith in human ability. He thinks man, on, on, on reason alone, has the ability to organize all the data in the universe and to understand it and to come to ultimate answers. So it's ultimately a faith in man's rational capacity to understand everything, independent of anything else. And so the method that he uses is a rigorous independent use of logic and reason. It's independent from the Bible, independent from any revelation, independent from any information other than what he's able to get on his own in his own mind. Empiricism makes the same mistakes. Empiricism starts with sense perceptions. It's sense perceptions, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching. The external experiences help us to understand understand man. In the ancient world, it was Aristotle, uh, John Locke, others were uh, 16th century, or 17th century, 18th century empiricists. Now, in rationalism and empiricism are important. They form the foundation for scientific knowledge, but they have a limitation. That's what they don't acknowledge, is that they're limited. They can only go so far, because man's reason and man's experience is limited. It, it, it's only a drop in the entire bucket of the ocean. And yet he thinks that because he understands that drop, he can extrapolate to understand everything else in the ocean. Empiricism uses the same methodology, an independent use of logic and reason. An independent use of logic and reason. Independent from the Bible. It's rigorously logical. But see, what has happened historically is rationalism and empiricism never get there. They never get to the answers. They've never provided the answers. They've never decided, ultimately proven that God exists, how to get to God, how to have a relationship with God, uh, what the ultimate destiny of man is, what his ultimate character 
qualities are really all about. He's never gotten there. And so ultimately, they, they go bankrupt. And this has happened. It happened in the ancient world. It happened in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. We're seeing some of these results today because once rationalism and empiricism, and this dominated the Enlightenment, once that goes bankrupt, then people have to have a source of meaning. So they just have to leap to it. If I can't get there by reason and logic, then, then, then I just have to ignore where reason and logic take me, and I just have to believe there's meaning somehow. And that's called mysticism. And mysticism focuses on some inner private experience, an intuition, that a faith in human ability just because I have to believe it. And, and, and the hard thing with dealing with a mystic is that we try to answer their objections with logic, and they reject logic. Mysticism is inherently irrational and illogical. And they just believe it to believe it because I know it's true. I've just had this inner conviction. One of my seminary professors say, well, you know, they can't ever tell you the difference between this, this inner conviction and, and, uh, and gas. You know, maybe they just had a Mexican food for lunch. You know, being a little facetious. But it's non-verifiable. It's just I know it because I know it. Well, that's irrational. But ultimately, see, mysticism, empiricism, and rationalism all are based on faith. But the object of faith is either human, is always in human ability. It's in human reason. It's in human experience. It's in the, the fact that I've had this inner experience and I can know and I, and I have enough information to properly interpret this. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that the ultimate system of knowledge is revelation. Under the umbrella of revelation, we can use our reason and our experience, but it's controlled. The boundaries are set by by revelation. The psalmist says, in thy light I see light. You see, in, the, in God's light, which is revelation, that's the umbrella. That sets the boundaries. It's only when we're operating within the parameters of His revelation that we can see truth, that we can properly understand everything that's going on in the, in the rational and empirical dimensions. So in revelation, uh, the starting point is the objective revelation of God, and the method is the dependent use of logic and reason. See, it's not the independent use of logic and reason. It is dependent. It's using logic and reason within the umbrella of Scripture. Now, this is important because if we're going to understand cosmic thinking or any levels of what worldliness is in our culture, then this is the kind of vocabulary that we use to discuss it because it all has to do with knowledge. How do you know what these things are? What's your ultimate basis for knowledge? So, in this we see the sixth point that man has always sought to establish his authority of knowledge apart from revelation. But we start from Scripture. That's why Scripture is so important. That is the solution for the believer. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to the world, that is a cosmic thinking, but be transformed by the renewing, the renovation of your thinking. And that occurs by taking in Bible doctrine, by studying the Word. It's not just a matter of, of identifying fallacies in our thinking, false methods and false aspects of thought, but it is also filling it with the positive truth of God's Word. And the more we take in the truth, the more it flushes out the negative. But we have to understand. Sometimes we have to understand it in, in, in a contrast. And only when we take the truth of God's Word and then contrast it to the, to the deception that the world teaches, that we begin to see the truth in its, in, in, in its full glory so that we're able to dump the garbage that's in our soul and stick with the truth. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the fact that your Word is, is true light, absolute light, and in your light we see light. We thank you for your word that's alive and powerful, that it was breathed out by you. That is, on the basis of your word that is truth, that we are sanctified. Father, we pray that as we continue this study on worldliness and on the cosmic thinking, that you would help us to understand these things and how they apply to our lives. We pray, Father, that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain.
It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of making a bargain with God. It's not a matter of joining a church. It's not a matter of ritual. It's simply a matter of what are you trusting in? Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou wilt be saved. Scripture emphasizes the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, who was buried and rose again the third day, and that salvation is only by putting your faith and trust alone in Christ alone. All you need to do right where you sit right now is make that decision to trust Christ alone for your salvation. It's not even a matter of prayer. It's not a matter of anything else. God knows what you believe. God knows what you've trusted in. And once you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you're adopted into the royal family of God and given a new position that can never be taken away, and you have the eternal gift of salvation. Father, we thank you for what we have learned today. We pray that those who are believers will be challenged by the doctrine that we have studied. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.